Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on this week's program, we'll visit the Henry B. Plant Museum in the former Tampa Bay Hotel. So you go throughout the museum, and not only do you see what it was like as a hotel, but what was it like to be a tourist staying in Florida? What, what would you have experienced while you were here? The Tyson family has been operating a small cattle ranch since the mid-1800s, and we'll hear about a theatrical production looking at the slaughter of French Huguenots in colonial Florida. He heard of a chance to sign up with a voyage to the New World with Captain Jean Rebaud. There was a lot of appeal to the New World, the exoticness of La Belle Floride. That and more ahead on Florida Frontiers. system of railroads helped to create modern Florida. When Henry Plant was born in 1819, Florida was still under Spanish control. By 1821, Florida was named a United States territory, and in 1845, it became a state. Before his death in 1899, Henry Plant helped to develop Florida with railroads, steamships, and luxury hotels. In discussions of railroads and their impact on Florida's growth, Henry Flagler is usually the first person mentioned. Henry Plant and Henry Flagler were friendly competitors who sometimes worked together. Sally Schiffke is with the Henry B. Plant Museum. He was equally as important. I think the reason Henry Plant doesn't get quite as much recognition as Henry Flagler is that Henry Flagler's personal money was in Palm Beach. He moved down to Palm Beach, had many children that continue the Flagler name today. On the other hand, Henry Plant came to the west coast of Florida, but he always remained in New York and Connecticut. He had one surviving son that lived in New York City, and when Henry Plant passed away, there was no one really to continue to carry the torch for him. His family eventually sold off his holdings in Florida. So I think although Henry Plant and Henry Flagler developed the state, Henry Flagler gets more attention because his personal wealth is still in the state of Florida. Henry Flagler's railway extended from Jacksonville down Florida's east coast, eventually linking the mainland to the Keys. He built luxury hotels along his train route, stimulating tourism. Flagler created the town of Palm Beach and allowed for development in South Florida. Similarly, Henry Plant linked Central and West Florida to the rest of the country with his railway. Plant's holdings, um, his railroads went um, up and down the southeastern United States. He started buying up bankrupt railroad lines after the Civil War, and eventually they worked themselves down 
to the um, middle of Florida and then crossed over to the West Coast and went all the way down to Fort Myers. In addition to his railway, Henry Plant operated a steamship line. After bringing his railway to Tampa, Plant used his steamship line to link West Florida to Key West and Cuba. This allowed for the transportation of both goods and people via train and steamship. With Tampa Bay the hub of Plant's transportation system, in 1891 he constructed the huge and luxurious Tampa Bay Hotel. When he got here in the early 1880s, there were only 750 people living here. It was this sleepy little town going nowhere. And Henry Plant built the port, eventually brought the railroads, and then initially his first hotel that he built was the Inn of Port Tampa, which was only 40 rooms. And then he went on to build this colossal palace with over 511 rooms, the Tampa Bay Hotel. Visitors to what is now the University of Tampa can still imagine what the Tampa Bay Hotel must have been like in its heyday. A series of fanciful minarets reach up to the sky from an elaborately ornamented Victorian building. Sally Shifke. Well, Henry Plan had traveled Europe and the Middle East, and he was captivated by the Middle Eastern architecture. He wanted to create a exotic palace for wealthy northerners to come and visit. So he took this Moorish Byzantine architecture, and you have these magnificent minarets on top of the building in their beautiful silver, silver metal. And then you take this Victorian period, which puts this dark brick facade on the outside with the brick brack on the veranda. And it is just a most interesting look to a building that just captures your imagination that maybe you've stepped out of the Arabian Nights. A huge covered porch extends across the front of the former Tampa Bay Hotel. Photographs from the late 1800s and early 1900s show wealthy northerners sitting on the porch enjoying the shade. The interior of the hotel featured unique comforts for the day, such as electricity. It was one of the first buildings to be electrified in the state of Florida. In fact, when you think about it, he actually had to build a power plant on the grounds. There, were, there was no power. And in the museum, we've gone back to the original lighting. Oftentimes they'll say, why is it so dark? Well, it's because we have reproductions of the Thomas Edison carbon filament light bulb that was part of this magnificent uh, structure when it opened. Henry Plant wanted his Tampa Bay Hotel to compete with the grand hotels of his rival Henry Flagler, so visitors were offered every possible amenity. The hotel sat on 150 acres, and truly Henry Plant wanted this building to be just the cutting edge of modernism. So you had a um, an elevator, one of the first in the state of Florida. You had these electric lights, there was a boathouse. You could go boating and fishing. There was a golf course, tennis courts. He built a racetrack for his guests. He also built a performing arts center, which he called the casino. And inside the casino, it sat almost 2,000 people. But in addition, during the day, the floor would roll up, and there was a 50-by-70-foot pool inside of that casino. The opulent Tampa Bay Hotel continued operating even after Henry Plant's death in 1899. As Sally Shifke explains, the city of Tampa purchased the hotel. What's amazing is that Henry Plant invested $2.5 million to build the hotel, and he and his wife Margaret went to Europe and purchased another half a million dollars worth of furnishings. They filled 41 railroad cars. When Henry Plant dies in 1899, his heirs sell the 
hotel, its furnishings, and the grounds that it sits on to the city of Tampa in 1905 for $125,000. And it had become such a white elephant because of its sheer size, Ben. It was so large, you could not make a profit with this building. You couldn't attract enough wealthy northerners to come to this winter resort. With the Great Depression of the 1930s, the luxurious Tampa Bay Hotel closed its doors. In 1933, the University of Tampa took control of the building. At the time, they were a two-year college, and with the Depression, they wanted them to become a four-year credited college. So the agreement was you move in, take care of the property, and for that, you can have it if you're a four-year credited college, which they did. And then in 1933, at the same time, they dedicated this wing to Henry Plant for a museum. So we have been here as long as the University of Tampa. Although the Henry B. Plant Museum occupies just a small portion of the former Tampa Bay Hotel, visitors today can still get a feel for how magnificent the hotel must have been. Our writing and reading room is the most authentic room in the museum. And in 1933, when the museum staff took over this wing, they simply unlocked the doors and nothing had been disturbed. It was the original writing room Initially, it was called the men's writing and reading room because back then, women, although they were allowed to come in, would not have been inclined, nor, nor would they have been encouraged to come in. So that room, it truly is stepping back in time. There is a three-bedroom suite that's been recreated that gives you an idea of how luxurious it was to stay at the Tampa Bay Hotel. In 1891, the average price of a hotel room in the United States would have been 2 to $3 a night. At the Tampa Bay Hotel, a single room was $5, and that three-room suite would have been 15 So it was very expensive to stay here. Henry Plant was superintendent of the Adams Express Company in the 1850s. In 1861, he organized and became president of the Southern Express Company. Following the Civil War, Plant invested in failing Southern railroads, combining them into a very successful operation that also included steamships and hotels. Several of the exhibits at the Henry B. Plant Museum focus on his business ventures. There's the Plant System Room that sh showcases Henry Plant and the different areas that he made his money, and then through the end of the year, we have a special exhibit room called Henry Plant, King of Florida. And that really takes you all through the life of Henry Plant. You know, he started as a farmer's son in Bradford, Connecticut, and how he acquired all these different ships and, and railroad lines. So you can really track the growth of this man and his um, wealth. What's interesting about Henry Plant, he seemed to be the kind of man that intuitively knew what was going to happen in the future and capitalize on it. And I think one of the reasons that he was so successful was his natural curiosity. And we are looking at a case that has pictures from the different world, from the different fairs. And in 1889, Henry Plant actually represented the United States in the exposition of the World's Fair exposition in Paris and raised the American flag in front of the Eiffel Tower. He then went to the Chicago World's Fair in 1893, where he purchased Thomas Edison's electric launch boats. They were a new invention. He purchased several of them for the hotel, and our hotel guests could go up and down the Hillsborough River in Thomas Edison's electric launch boats.
In addition to displays recreating the Tampa Bay Hotel experience and exhibits exploring Henry Plant's life and work, the Henry B. Plant Museum is filled with antiques and furniture that reflect the Victorian era. There's a room that we call the Spanish-American War Room, and that room highlights the only time that the, the hotel was filled to capacity. Henry Plant had lobbied Washington to have the Spanish-American War headquartered here, and we had all the officers from the armies as well as the press corps staying at the hotel. Then you have a room that talks just about sports and amusements, all of the different things that people could enjoy as guests in the hotel. So you go throughout the museum, and not only do you see what it was like as a hotel, but what was it like to be a tourist staying in Florida? What, what would you have experienced while you were here? Ben, we are situated in front of a chair that is actually in the shape of an S, and two people would sit in this chair. This building represents the late Victorian period. In part of that period, there were all kinds of social rules that dictated how men and women behaved. And they would separate you from different um, levels of society. This This chair, they referred to as the courtship chair. And the reason for that was that a man and a woman could sit in this chair with this basically this wood separating them and they could sit and have a conversation a private conversation without touching the whole idea was that back then if you were a man and a woman dating you weren't allowed to touch or hold each other's hand believe it or not now in all likelihood if you were staying at the tampa bay hotel there was a chaperone in this in the room with you to guarantee no touching henry plant and his wife traveled to europe to acquire the most spectacular artifacts they could find to adorn the tampa bay hotel That splendor is recreated today at the Henry B. Plant Museum. We have pieces from all over the world. We have pieces from China, India, Japan, as well as European pieces. And what is interesting is that people in the Victorian time were finally able to travel all over the world. And they loved things that were old. So we have pieces in the museum that are old, but if even if they weren't old, in 1891 they were made to look old. We have beautiful sculptures um, that are full height of a person. We have paintings. We have beautiful jars. Again, jars that are five feet tall from Japan and China. So the museum as the Tampa Bay Hotel was filled with beautiful items for these Victorian guests to enjoy. And I think there's an expression they use to describe the Victorian period. More is more. So simplicity was not part of their vocabulary. So when you come into the museum, it is just a hallway and rooms filled with magnificent pieces. And I think what makes this museum so unique, Ben, is that Not everything is stanchioned off. You get to walk freely through the museum. And although we don't want you to touch anything, you really can get up close. You get a very intimate feel of being at the hotel and being able to study these beautiful pieces of furniture with inlaid wood, carvings, uh, marble tops. It just goes on and on. Sally Schiffke is with the Henry B. Plant Museum at the University of Tampa.
If you'd like more information about Henry Plant, go to myfloridahistory.org, where you can find the Kelly Reynolds book, Henry Plant, Pioneer Empire Builder, and many other great books about Florida history and culture. You can also find photographs, audio and video archives, and much more. While you're there, click on the Join Now button to become a member of the Florida Historical Society and get our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly. That's myfloridahistory.org. This is Florida Frontiers. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. In 1513, Spanish explorer Juan Ponce de Leon landed on Florida's shore, beginning a cultural relationship between Spain and Florida that will be commemorated throughout the state on its 500th anniversary in 2013. This moment in Florida history features Dana St. Clair, Director of Heritage Tourism and Historic Preservation for the city of St. Augustine. The St. Augustine story is a compelling narrative of exploration, innovation, and survival. It is marked by many milestones. The first permanent European settlement, site of the first Christian mass in the Americas, the first freed black settlement, the first port to develop into a center of transatlantic trade and commerce, site of the first hospital, the first tavern, an early leader in city planning with the first European town plan, its transformation into a world-class resort in the late 1800s, and its place as a crossroads and battleground in the movement for equality in the mid-1960s. Millions of American lives have been touched by what happened in St. Augustine over four and a half centuries. It is a living classroom for people of all backgrounds to learn about hope, freedom, traditions, opportunity, and even sometimes defeat. It is the story of America. Dana St. Clair is Director of Heritage Tourism and Historic Preservation for the City of St. Augustine. This moment in Florida history was created and produced by the Florida Humanities Council with funds from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, commemorating 500 years of Spanish history and culture in Florida. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. The Tyson family has been part of Florida's cattle ranching tradition since the mid-1800s. Janie Gould has more. Marvin and Beverly Tyson used to raise beef cattle on a small spread behind their home in Felsmere in Indian River County. Marvin always handled them immediately when they were born, so they became gentle. A lot of them were hand-fed. Of course, the mothers were gentle because they'd been hand-raised. Did you hand-feed some of them? I did. It was quite an experience. (laughs) They have a large plastic bottle with a large nipple on the end. The little ones bump their mother. They would bump you just like you were the mother and just go after the milk. It was milk from the mama cow, right? No, it was milk that we mixed. There was a dry formula that you mixed with water. One morning, I looked out on the ditch bank. A mother was ready to give birth. When she did, the calf rolled off into the ditch, which had water in it. I bolted out the door. I pulled the baby out of the water and got his head up. She couldn't tell the difference in the calf or myself because we both had the same odor at that point. So she was cleaning both of us. When the pasture wasn't producing enough grass, the Tysons fed their herd from the back of their truck. Marvin would drive the truck. I would get in the back and open the bags and leave the tailgate down and just jiggle the cubes out of the bag. And the cows just followed the cubes. 
sometimes when it was a hot day and we'd been working, we would get a beer and go out back. The cattle were so gentle when we were in the yard, they would come up to the fence. One day I thought, well, this might be fun. I'll just see if he likes beer. So the young bull was there, so I poured a little beer on the end of his nose and he licked it off quickly and liked it. Eventually, he learned how to drink a whole bottle of beer. Did it have any noticeable effect on him? No, it would affect me quicker than it would him because of the body weight. He weighed about a 1,000 pounds, I guess. That's right. We did sell him, and we neglected to tell the new owner that he liked beer. So the new owner was talking with one of his clients one day, and they were having a beer. They were near the pasture where the bull was. He came loping up to try to take their beers. The new owner talked with us about it. We said, oh, Sorry, we forgot to tell you he's a beer drinker. The big-headed yellow cur dog, that's the rancher's best friend, right? Well, they're not always big-headed and they're not always yellow, but they have beautiful heads. One good dog will take the place of three good men. So that's not just a saying, that's really true. That's really true. They're hard to come by. You have to know somebody that has had the bloodlines, and people are very protective with this type of dog. Is it a purebred of something or other? It is not a purebred. There's a leopard dog, or glass-eyed dogs, leopard glass-eyed dogs. I call them stock dogs because you not only use them for cattle, you use them for hogs. You have to have a good dog man or dog woman. You're a good dog woman, right? I wouldn't say that but I'd say Marvin was a good dog man. I learned from him. He taught me to work first. (laughs) The dogs were taught if they did something wrong, they were reprimanded just like I was. We're not talking about a fancy dog obedience school, I don't think. Not by any stretch of the imagination. In Florida, where the land is flat and the cattle can get away from you, they could get ahead of the cattle and hold the cattle up for you. So in Florida, it's not so much a case of the dog's purring the cattle along, it's holding them back. Exactly. How many dogs would be able to control, let's say, a herd of 100 head of cattle? Two? One good dog could do that, but two would be better. Marvin and Beverly Tyson are Florida natives whose roots in the state go back to the mid-19th century. Their cattle raising years are behind them, and they live in Vero Beach now. Beverly serves as executive director of the Indian River County Historical Society. Janie Gould prepared that report. This is Florida Frontiers. A French flute player is at the heart of a theatrical production that looks at one of the most violent episodes from Florida's colonial period, the massacre of hundreds of French Huguenots by Spanish soldiers. As Bill Dudley reports, the production seeks to shed light on this event and its significance for us today. I have made my peace with God. So for 20 years I have waited, not for escape, but for rescue. The words of a French prisoner in the Spanish city of St. Augustine, as spoken by actor Scott Iser. I knew that I could not endure life in the wilderness. La Faride, she is filled with creatures that will kill you. Bear, panther, insects, the unforgiving, unbelievable heat, and finally, the hurricanes. Isert is performing in a one-man play, Matanzas, a survivor's story, about a young Frenchman who sets out looking for adventure in the New World in the year 1565. This young man's name was Nicolas Bourguignon, who was a fife player, raised in the life of music. His whole family was involved with music. He was the fourth son, and in those days, the fourth son pretty much was deemed to a mundane existence. He heard 
of a chance to sign up with a voyage to the New World with Captain Jean Rabot. There was a lot of appeal to the New World, the exoticness of La Belle Floride, as they called it then. He was 15 years old. They landed on the 14th of August. Rabot and his expedition were coming to reinforce a colony of French Huguenots established a year before at Fort Caroline on the St. John's River near present-day Jacksonville. But behind the French was a Spanish expedition led by Pedro Menendez de Aviles. Leaving a few soldiers to guard the colonists at the fort, Rabot sailed out to meet Menendez in early September, only to be caught in a tropical storm and wrecked 50 miles down the coast. Meanwhile, at dawn on September 20, 1565, less than two weeks after he founded St. Augustine, Menendez attacked Fort Caroline, killing everyone except some of the non-combatants and a few musicians, including the young Pfeiffer. In early October, he caught up with Rabot and his men at the mouth of a river later named Matanzas, Spanish for slaughter. In the play, the 15-year-old witnesses his captain's final moments. Rabot looked at him into his eyes, and he said, Monsieur, one day you may find yourself in my position. And when you do, you will be judged by God for your deeds here today. He then handed him his red cap, and bravely he stood to face his death. Rabot and as many as 300 of his men were put to the sword. The young musician would spend the next 20 years forced to play for the Spanish rulers of St. Augustine, longing for his freedom. He stashed a rowboat in the reeds. One day he's in the tower, he looks out, he sees the British flag on ships. This is the day he's been waiting for for 20 years. He runs down, gets in a rowboat, rows halfway out to them with an earshot and started playing the Protestant anthem, which is the Prince of Orange March, as a signal that there are Protestants here, please come save us. The English raiders, a large force commanded by Sir Francis Drake, looted and burned St. Augustine. Nicolas Bergagnon was ultimately given his passage home to France. It's ironic. The whole thing is a huge piece of historical irony, which is a fascinating thing for, I think, all playwrights and dramatists alike. Project director and playwright Minda Stevens hopes the play will bring some of history's lessons home to its audience. When I wrote this, I had a, a distinct feeling that I was, bringing, I was bringing these Huguenots back to life in a way, a way that I think is unique to dramatists and to people who write histories. And for me, on a personal level, that's a very important part of why I do what I do. Aside from that, I think that for audiences to to see that this kind of violation happens, and it happens, it happened then, and it happens now. It seems as though it's built into human beings to get divisive like this based along ethnic or religious lines. St. Augustine anthropologist Pat Griffin was advisor to the project. This was really just a small incident. People think of it as big here. But this was a small incident in that total situation that was happening in Europe at the time. You had the three great powers, France, Spain, and England, and they were jockeying back and forth. Some have defended the actions of Menendez, saying the two countries were at war, or there would have been no way to feed the Frenchman taken prisoner. But for Nicolas Bergagnon, the years of captivity only reinforced his hatred of an ancestral enemy. I have been enslaved for being a Protestant. I have been reviled for being a Frenchman. I have seen the Spanish priest class 
educate the Timucua tribe, convert them to Catholic, only to give them last rites from disease or slavery. In my time here, in my 20 years, I may not have seen everything, but I have seen enough. I'm Bill Dudley. With funding from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, this report was produced by the Florida Humanities Council. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week, and until then, visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org. You can also find us on Facebook at Florida Historical Society and follow us on Twitter at MyFLHistory. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated.